Welcome to That's What She Said, a podcast of sermons at Galileo Christian Church, Disciples of Christ. Galileo exists to seek and shelter spiritual refugees, who for us are people for whom the church has become boring, irrelevant, exclusive, or even painful, especially people who have been pushed out because of their gender or sexuality. If you yourself are a spiritual refugee, we're especially glad you're listening. So uh, we're in this uh, God With Us Call the Midwife series where we're looking at origin stories of Jesus from each of the four Gospels. Because each of them, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, tell it quite, quite differently. Last week, we read from Matthew, the genealogy of Jesus, all the way back to Abraham. And we'll get to more of Matthew's telling of that story in weeks to come. But tonight, we are moving on quickly to the Gospel of Mark. I'll be reading from chapter 1, verses 1 through 15. Now listen, I do not usually give you any instructions for how you ought to listen to the reading of Scripture. But tonight, I am urging you to follow along closely. Get out a Bible, even. Maybe from your shelf, or maybe on your phone, And find Mark chapter 1 so that you can follow along a little bit later when the sermon does its work. I think you're going to want to see it for yourself. This is Mark chapter 1. The beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in the prophet Isaiah, See, I am sending my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John the baptizer appeared in the wilderness, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And people from the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem were going out to him and were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now, John was clothed with camel's hair, with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. He proclaimed, the one who is more powerful than I is coming after me. I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. I've baptized you with water, but he'll baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee, and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And just as he was coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens torn apart and the spirit descending like a dove on him. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son, the beloved, with you I am well pleased. And the spirit immediately drove Jesus out into the wilderness He was in the wilderness 40 days, tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild beasts, and the angels waited on him. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came to Galilee proclaiming the good news of God and saying, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Fun fact, it takes only two 
of the four Gospels to get you a complete nativity set. From Luke, you get your pregnant bride trekking with her husband-to-be from Nazareth to Bethlehem. No mention of a donkey in the text, but let's hope she didn't have to walk the whole way. It's also Luke who gives us the birthplace of a barn, the mother laboring away in a stable, the newborn diapered in scraps of cloth and laid down to sleep in a feed trough. That's where your cows and other donkeys come in. Hay is good if you've got some. Matthew alone has the unusually bright star over the region of Judea guiding long-distance visitors to the general geography, but not the exact location of the baby's birth. Luke has first one angel, then a whole multitude of angels singing an invitation with an address to shepherds who come into town from the fields when they hear about the baby. So add a few little lambs to the crew on your coffee table. Matthew gives us astrologers traveling from the east with gifts from which we naturally extrapolate camels. At my house, we've thrown in some winged unicorns as well because who knows what kind of magical animals those astrologers traveled with. Listen, the camels aren't in there either. Matthew is also interested in Joseph and how he feels about the whole thing. So there's the adoptive dad ready to care for the child of another, somewhat conflicted, but faithful nonetheless. He is pensive. At least that's how he looks in my set. And that there is your whole nativity collection. All the extras circled around the teensy tiny newborn who has a name and a genealogy, and a family, and a religion, and a destiny, all of which we celebrate on a date fixed in the 4th century CE when a whole lot of dates were getting sorted out on the Roman calendar. Because birthdays are important. Because birth is important. It's how all of us begin. It's universal in the human family that we weren't, and then we were, and that's where everything starts, right? Except for Mark, who has not one single word to say about the birth of Jesus. Now, if this were a paper you were reading instead of a sermon I am preaching, there would be an asterisk here, and the footnote would read, neither does John's gospel, but John's gospel is a whole nother thing, and we will get to that later. The only assurance we have that Mark's Jesus did not jump into our Bible's timeline from a parallel universe comes in chapter 1, verse 9. Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee. Like, Mark is aware that Jesus had a life before he showed up at the River Jordan for his baptism by John. He was in Nazareth of Galilee. So, Mark just either doesn't know or doesn't care to tell us anything about it. And either of those is an interesting option. I mean, if Mark doesn't know, it's because the sources who told him the story of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, did not themselves care enough to tell him the part about him being born. It just didn't seem to him or to them essential to rendering the identity of the Savior of the world, where and when he was born, to whom and under what circumstances, just not that interesting. Except, isn't it? 
I mean, everybody starts somewhere, don't we? We originate, we begin, we become, and we are birthed into this world, and we start changing it the very instant we arrive. Newborn Lydia, my first, was not into her first diaper before Lance declared that I needed to find a more lucrative career so he could quit work and homeschool her. She changed our world entirely, as did her brother after her. All of us do, a little bit, a bit more so, if we are the Messiah. So I asked Mark, I asked him, Hey man, why so mum about his coming into the world? This is the birth on which the whole of human history pivots. This is the child on whom our reconciliation with creator and creation rests. This is the babe foretold by the prophets, the infant who plays over the hole of the asp, the shoot that springs from the stump of Jesse, and a little child shall lead them, you know, all that. I know you like to go fast, your style is punchy for sure, but couldn't you find 150 words or so for his birthday? You know, put your own little spin on the nativity sets adorning all our living rooms. And Mark, he says back to me, he says, you talk a lot. I wrote the only birth narrative that matters. Read it again. He is one succinct fella. So I read it again. Read it along with me, if you will. The beginning of the good news of Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. As it is written in the prophet Isaiah. See, I am sending my midwife before you, who will prepare the birthing site for you, away from the populated places, out in the wilderness, because birthing is wild and only someone wild can be of real help out there. John, the midwife, appeared in the wilderness, meaning that it's quite possible that he jumped into this timeline from a parallel universe, and he started birthing babies in the river called Jordan. And he was wild, all right. He wore nothing but the hairy hide of a pack animal cinched tight around his waist, the right clothes for birth work, no flowy robes or fabric that stains. He carried snacks with him everywhere he went, bugs and honey for a blood sugar boost during the long hours of labor. And John hollered, he did, in between the mother's contractions. All of this is practice, he said. All these individual births, one human at a time, mere preparation. Because there is one coming after me that will midwife the birth of a whole new world. Wait and see. That one is stronger than I, wilder than I. Though he wears shoes, a full set of clothes, I'll encourage him to strip down for this work. But I will not get close enough to touch him. He'll do as he pleases, and I'm not worthy to try and change his mind. Now bear down and push, Mama. We got another one on its way. And while John was midwifing souls from that muddy river, Jesus appeared, shoes and all, after a long trek from up north. Nothing to say about him, nothing much, just yet. A nondescript traveler with hot feet that wanted to rest in the cool water. He unlaces his own sandals, thank you very much, wades in to wait, 
His turn comes with John, the midwife. He disappears into the deep darkness of the world's womb. He waits in the quiet for whatever comes next. The uterine earth shivers, small at first, then convulses and contracts. The river swells and heaves, wave after wave of purposeful pain. The whole cosmos groans with the effort, sending energy to muscles seldom flexed at this magnitude. The midwife gives his own brow one last sweaty swipe, shouts one last encouragement to Mother Earth, hunkers down, hands out to catch the about-to-be-born Messiah, and with the river's next push, pulls that child of God into the light of day, pulls him from the gushing liquid with a whoosh, pulls him in a close embrace to his own breast, waits for the gasp of first breath, wipes the muddy meconium from his blinded eyes to show him the wonderful, weary, wild world he will redeem. The trees on the riverbank clap their hands. The rocks sing his new name. The river relaxes, exhausted, happy, having done her job exactly right. And then a voice from on high and we remember that the nervous parent in heaven has been looking on this whole time, standing back because they're not really sure how to help. And they're completely awestruck by the birth mother's strength and beauty and courage and sacrifice. And the parent in heaven says with a sob in their divine voice, ah, it's a boy, my son, my son, I have a son. And such joy as I now know has never been. And he is perfect. He is perfect perfect and he is mine and I love him and he is everything good the newborn babe will have to grow into that adoration that messianic world saving identity growing up is a lot like being flung into a desert honestly where an adversary tries to steal your sense of personhood and purpose, where wild animals lurk around every corner waiting to exploit your vulnerability and feast on your innocence and tell you you're not good enough. They help you grow up, for sure, probably faster than you should have to. But there are angels out there, too, in the wilderness of becoming who you are, kind and strong advocates who will find you when you're lost and feed you when you're hungry and hold on to you when you're lonely. And between them all, adversary, animals, angels, the identity you inherited at your birth is forged into something much stronger. You grow into the child of humanity you were always meant to be. And so he does our newborn Jesus, grow into himself in the wilderness beyond the Jordan. And when the time is right, well, 
actually, when the time is exactly wrong because John the midwife has caught the attention of the authorities, his birth work outside the licensure and comfort zone of the powers that be, his arrest meant to send a strong signal to any who would disrupt and resist the status quo. When that exact moment comes, Jesus comes back full circle, full grown to his home in Galilee to utter his first words in Mark's telling, his own strong signal, a defiant response to any system that pretends ownership of this world and its people. The time, he says, is now. The reign of God is right here, so close you can reach out and touch it. Change everything you have to so that this will be good news for you. What if Mark is saying that baptism is the only birth that matters? Okay, maybe not the only birth that matters, but all that baby in a manger stuff runs the risk of obscuring the reality that even for Jesus, being born Emmanuel, God with us, was not enough. He had to be born again to say yes to his own destiny, to his identity as God's own son, beloved by God, with whom God was well pleased. He was born to be the Messiah. He was born again to become the Messiah. He grew into his identity the same way we grow into ours. It is universal in the human family. We're born full of potential. And potential becomes reality when we say yes to all that God means for us to be. There is a little creed in Galatians 3, verses 27 and 28, that I love. It is an eschatological statement, that is to say, a statement about what's possible when God gets everything God wants. And in this case, it's about what's possible for human identity when God gets everything God wants. And it fits here because it is about the baptized identities of Christians. And it says, Galatians 3, as many of you as were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves in Christ. There is no longer Jew or Greek. There is no longer slave or free. There is no longer male and female for all of you are one in Christ Jesus. And I used to think that meant that when we're baptized, our racial ethnic differences, our economic disparity, our sex and gender distinctions just float away in the waters, leaving us each kind of spiritually neutral, indistinguishable from one another. I thought that somehow our unity, our being one in Christ Jesus, meant the identities we were born with could not survive being born again. I thought that's what we should want. Unity in our uniformity, all of us the same. But Galileo Church has made me think different about that. Many of you have told me about your season in the wilderness fighting adversaries and wild animals, 
fighting to stay alive, struggling to become who you were born to be, the true child of God that you are, in all your quirky queerness, in all your neurodiverse glory, in all your peculiar beauty and giftedness. I have come to understand that God's invention of baptism was never meant to wash all of that away. It was never meant to disappear the you that you are. You are God's child, after all. You are beloved. God is well pleased with you. And so it seems to me that everyone, each one, who is born again, born of God, born in the river of the world God still loves, is birthed into the fullness of all that that one is meant to be. If you're meant to be the Messiah, baptism is the rebirth that makes it so. If you're meant to be a poet, a maker, a solver, a teacher, a thinker, a giver, a helper, a lifter, a challenger. Baptism is the rebirth that makes your identity shine. If you were born to love someone and make promises and give birth to potential humans of your own, baptism is the blessing for that essential labor of love. Like a rock pulled from the river's bank, dip it in the water, Wash it with your fingers, and when you draw it out, it shines and shimmers in the sun. This is you, baptized. Of course, the baptized church will not honor the hierarchies of the first birth, the power differentials of gender and class, race and ethnicity, a tragic caste system that the youngest child understands, no matter their position on Privilege Mountain or in the Valley of Disadvantage. Like Isaiah said, that's all going to get leveled out in any community that wants to receive our God. Mountains raised, valleys filled in, level ground for God's highway. Like Paul said, all of us baptized all of us one in Christ Jesus. Or like Mark says, the only birth that matters now is your baptism. It's where you become all that you were always meant to be. Now look, this is not the kind of church where we sing a song of invitation with multiple choruses meant to manipulate you into the water. Plus, we're in a pandemic, and some of you are really far away. But I'd be remiss not to articulate the explicit promise that Galileo Church stands ready to baptize you if you haven't been already. Not because you have to in order to qualify for church membership or for God's approval, but because we love helping each other become who God already knows us to be. We love seeing each other and being seen the way God sees us. That's 
One of the things it means when we say we contemplate our baptisms around here, we think about who we are becoming, we practice the habits of life that can help us draw near to God's heart, we experience how drawing near to God's heart changes us degree by degree into the whole beautiful humans we were always meant to be. Say yes to that, church. For the first time, or all over again, say yes, just like Jesus in that river, God's child, God's beloved, with whom God is so pleased. Thanks for listening to That's What She Said. This podcast is preached almost always by our lead evangelist, Reverend Dr. Katie Hayes. Galileo Church has five missional priorities. We do justice for LGBTQ plus people and those who love them. We do kindness to those in mental and emotional distress and celebrate neurodiversity. We do beauty for our God who is beautiful. We do real relationship, no bullshit, ever. And we do whatever it takes to share this good news with the world God still loves. To support the production of this podcast and the ongoing missional priorities of this church, go to GalileoChurch.org and click on Conspire With Us. You'll have options to use your Venmo or PayPal or use your credit card or bank account. Any amount helps. And if you're kind enough to share your contact information with us, we'll continually send you thanks. Peace.